welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As we're standing, we honor the reading and the hearing of God's Word. As we continue in our preaching series through the epistle to the Colossians, we come now to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. So let us hear the Word of God. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's mighty word And it has a mighty word for us. May we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I'm going to give you a pop quiz class. That's right. Define metaphor for me. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? No, no. Well, you may not be able to define it, but you know what it is because you use it all the time. So do I. Uh, a metaphor is a, is a phrase that we use that illustrates something else. It's, it's a gathering of words that are used to describe something that we want to emphasize and talk about its intensity. So uh, metaphors, uh, well, they, they fall into our everyday language. Um, and uh, there's some that you've used maybe even the last week. So you know what they are. Here's some examples of metaphors. Somebody could say, his words cut deeper than a knife. Metaphor. Illustration of deep hurt through someone's words. Or she's drowning in a sea of grief. We now understand that. We get that, that this is a person that feels like they're being pulled under the water of their grief. You know, we get that. The metaphor carries strength into the idea. Or somebody might tell you, you know, right now I'm going through a roller coaster of emotions. We all, we all get that, and when you use a metaphor, we kind of get it in intensity. Well, the Bible is written, of course, as we think and, and work in truth, and often the writers of Scripture use metaphor. I mean, countless times virtually in, in, in the Bible. Paul is using some metaphoric language in this section of Scripture that we've been in for the last week or two. Uh, he uses... Uh, Four metaphors, at least four biblical images, if you will, and he uses them to illustrate four great truths about what Jesus has done, and he uses them to demonstrate the intensity and the immensity of what only Jesus can do and has done in our lives. So that's what we've been looking at together. Remember, this epistle was written in part to, uh, on Paul's part, to argue against some false teachers that were seeking to convince the Colossian Christians to move away from what they believed about Jesus and to become devoted to some of of these other God concepts that these false teachers were floating. And so this part of the epistle, the second chapter, is really the heart of how Paul goes against that teaching and argues against it. And in this flow of thought, he, he argues from immensity to triviality. He says, listen, I'm going to remind you once again of the immense things Jesus has done for you. And in fact, that only Jesus could have done for you. And when you get in touch with the immensity of what he's done and only he provides, you will not be attracted to the triviality of what other people are telling you about God or about truth. You will You'll have a a basis of total allegiance on Jesus because you'll value him so much. So it was an argument of immensity toward triviality. When you see the greatness of what he's done, you'll desire only Jesus. 
This has been known by uh, those that have pastored souls for generations since Paul wrote these words. Christians have always struggled with other people coming to them with more attractive options for Christ or for following Christ. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor of souls in, in 1875, one of the greatest English-speaking preachers to ever live, would often tell people, listen, I'm not going to abandon Jesus because, quote, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. That's everything that Paul is saying here. When you really understand how great your need is for what only Christ can do, and you understand the greatness of what Christ has done and will do in your life, you will not abandon him. So that's the line of thinking Paul's in, and he uses four metaphors, four biblical images to communicate four great things that only Jesus has done and can do for his, for his people. We've, uh, we've gone through two. The first metaphor or biblical image was in verse 11, and he used the image of circumcision, which was used to describe the fact that when you came to Christ, you were born again, you received a new nature, and that great addiction to sin, the power of sin was cut away from you like like, like circumcision cuts away a, a, a part of the human body. It was cut away from you so that you now have a new identity and you can start living for the things of God. There's a new you in place here. So a new identity. Secondly, we talked about a new capability. That was verse 12 where he uses the image or the metaphor of baptism. And he talks about that to reflect the fact that when you came to Christ, you died to an old life and you, re you received resurrection power. Romans 6 calls it a power for newness of life so that you can now have a capability to live into the future for Christ. So a new identity took care of the, the, the fact that you can now have a drive to love him and learn his word and you have a new capability to grow in that. And so Paul is talking about the fact that only Jesus revolutionized you like that. How could you abandon him? Today he finishes with two other images or metaphors, if you will. He talks in, uh, in verse 13 to 14 about a canceled record of debt. He takes an image out of their everyday lives and he talks about it as a metaphor of the depth of forgiveness that we have because of Jesus Christ. So I would use the word certainty there. Jesus Christ alone gives you the certainty that your sin has been forgiven. Fully, completely, past, present, future in an unbreakable forgiveness. Amen? That's our Lord. So you have a certainty that he uses the image of canceled debt to illustrate. And then finally, in verse 15, you also have a victory. He says, because of this marvel of forgiveness achieved at the cross, he also disarmed the rulers and authorities. There he takes a metaphor from the world of warfare, a military image. Once again, he was very fond of them. Maybe because he was chained to so many Roman soldiers throughout his career, I don't know. But he uses the imagery here of a disarmed enemy to illustrate the victory we have over the enemy of our souls. So there's beauty and power in what we're going to see. Now, like I did last week, I'll take each of these last two metaphors, if you will, these, these, these sections of thought, and I'll teach it in three ways. First, I'll talk about the biblical image that he uses, then the spiritual meaning behind the image or that's connected to it, and finally, the personal reality for you. What does this do in your daily walk? So let's go now to the, the final two images and truths. Here's, here's the first one. Only Jesus can give you moral certainty. That's how I'm describing the phenomenon of forgiveness. Only Jesus can give you moral certainty. This is verses 13 and 14, where he talks about the dynamic of being forgiven of all your trespasses, verse 13, and having your record of debt canceled out before God. This is magnificent language. This is one of the greatest places to discover the depth of the cross work of Christ you'll ever find in Scripture. Now, when I talk about moral certainty, why did I choose that wording? Well, it's because all human beings know they have a guilt problem with God. I don't care if you're uh, 
you're a, a rank atheist. I don't care if you're a total materialist that doesn't have a thought about spiritual things. I don't care what kind of religious uh, connection you might have with any of the world's major or minor religions right now. I don't care about any of that. I'm talking about in the depth of, of your conscience, in the depth of who you are and how you know and w- how you know your place in the universe. If you're alive and you're human, you know you have a guilt problem with God. Scripture tells us this. If you will, go to Romans chapter 1. I was there a couple weeks ago because this is such a primary passage about the nature of man's relationship with a holy God. Remember in Romans 1, the Scripture says in verse 20 that because of the, the, the intricacy and the beauty of physical creation all around us, all human beings know of the existence of God. There is no actual honest atheist on the planet never has been. Verse 24, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world from the first human life. Ever since the creation of the world, where have they been perceived in the things that have been made? So they are without excuse. What's he saying here? Creation is so immense and so intricate and so overwhelming in its beauty and strength and grandeur that it is a primary proof to every human being that there is someone, though invisible at the first part of verse 20, who is divine and has a divine nature. That means there is someone who is immense outside of me, above me, who created me, who is perfect and divine. His divine nature is clearly seen, so clearly seen so that they are without excuse. So, so every human being has a sense of the immensity of God, the perfection of God, the creator hand of God, and their awareness and responsibility to God. Does that make sense? Everywhere. And it's a gift, of course, because our movement into that light causes us to seek the light of how to know him more. Now, unfortunately, uh, some people would say, well, that's only for people that have access to the scripture. And so you're really limiting yourself. No, I'm not. Because in the, in the next chapter, in Romans chapter two, God, again, in scripture tells us that creation is a primary evidence, but he doesn't stop there. The scripture says in the Proverbs that God has placed eternity within the heart of every man. What's that mean? An awareness of eternal consequence for his life and an awareness of moral right and wrong. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Bears witness of an inner understanding of moral truth and how we fall short of it. Their thoughts, their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. And they know, in fact, perhaps, Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a lot there, but one of the things that I'm sure it says is that there's an inner awareness in the heart of every human being that not only does God exist in his immensity, his perfection, but I'm accountable to him. And there's a sense in us of right and wrong. And we know that we're on the darker side of that. That's all people. Now, what does man do in response to that? Well, Romans 1 tells you he doesn't automatically look to God for rescue. He usually builds his own religion. He forms something in the image of man. He creates his own answer to this darkened conscience and this sense of an immense and perfect God that he has to answer to. And so he creates a religion and all religions are based on the same idea. Here are the works you need to do to prove yourself worthy of this perfect God. Isn't that true? All religions in the world except biblical Christianity. All religions are built on on the phrase do. Biblical Christianity, as we'll learn today, is built on the phrase done. (laughs) But man doesn't understand that. And so Romans, you go farther into chapter three and verses 19 and 20, and you'll see that man invents religion. He invents works. He seeks to justify himself before God, but he's on a fruitless journey because that's impossible. God being perfect. Verse 19 of Romans three. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God's law is perfect. Every person who fundamentally looks at it has to admit it. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, you cannot live in any level of perfection, even if you knew all the intricacies of God's law as he revealed it in the Bible. You can never work your way into acceptance with a perfect God. So all human beings then do have a guilt problem with God. We see it in the immensity of who he is. We sense it in the dark side of the conscience that we have that tells us we are living in the shadow of our own sin. We try desperately to arrange our own acceptance with God and we fall short every time. And so we have a guilt problem with God. And I would say, actually, I'm going to qualify that. Every human being on the planet has a guilt problem with God except the born-again believer. Why? That's what Paul gets into here. That's what he begins to describe that we have in Christ alone. We have the certainty that our guilt problem with God is erased. Now, how can that be? Well, let me get into the text now. And again, let me open it up in those three ways. First of all, let's look at the biblical image that he begins with here. Go back to Colossians now from Romans to Colossians 2 and look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Why don't we have a guilt problem with God? Because God has arranged to forgive us all our trespasses. The word all is so important. Every dimension. What you know and what you don't know that stood against you. Now, what's the biblical image here? Well, he he begins by kind of repeating the problem in verse 13. He says, remember, you were dead in your trespasses, In other words, you were living apart from God. You had no desire for God. You had no uh, drive to know him. You were unable to respond to anything but sin. In fact, your your flesh, that, that means in verse 13, the drive in you to sin was who you were. You were dominated by that. You had no desire for God and no hope of ever getting loose of your sin in your daily life. But God acted and and into this, he has arranged in spite of that for you to be forgiven of all your trespasses. Right there at the end of verse 13. So this is the marvelous way in which God has moved into that desperate situation. And he kind of draws that situation out again, even though he'd illustrated it in verses 11 and 12. He repeats the problem and he says, yet God acted and forgave you of all of your sin. Now, he, begin, he, be, he brings in an image or a metaphor, if you will, to illustrate the depth of this. And he brings in the idea in verse 14, how did God do it? How did God arrange to forgive you of all your trespasses? Verse 13, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now we already see he's drawing an image from something they knew to illustrate something they didn't. He drew something out of the legal world of his listeners. And he talks about a couple of things, really. There are two words here that he uses that the whole idea hinges on. The first is when he talks about a record of debt. Interesting word. Um, The Greek word that's used there is the word that we literally get autograph from. What's an autograph? It's something you sign in your own hand. And what that meant at that time was when you owed a debt to someone, the custom was that you wrote out in your own handwriting the details of the amount you owed and why. And then you signed on the bottom stating, I acknowledge owning, I acknowledge owing this debt. Now, into our modern society, you might call that an IOU. Back then, you know, IOUs today, you write them on a little napkin at Starbucks and you say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you with whatever that is. No, IOUs today are, are, are somewhat informal. Then when you signed that certificate of debt, the debtor had it and it was in your own writing and it was held against you until it was paid. So it's, it's, it was a handwritten note acknowledging that you truly were indebted and you were not contesting it. You couldn't contest it. What he's saying here is that we had that level of debt before God himself. So he uses this idea. Now, it's interesting. He also uses a second metaphor. So let me just, I'm going to describe the the images, and then I'm going to show you the spiritual meaning that I believe he's communicating here. So there's the record of debt. Then he also says it was canceled. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, um, back in that time, as you probably know, um, the ancient documents that they used were written on one of two types of things. They, they were written on what, were, what was called papyrus. That was a kind of really pressed down paper, really primitive paper made out of the bulrush plant. And uh, it took a laborious process to make it. And so it was scarce and expensive. If you were a little bit upscale, you could actually go a little higher and you could use something called vellum, which was made from a pressing out of the hide of an animal into a very thin layer. And that was even more expensive. Now, in that time, you wouldn't want to waste something that expensive. Well, that was okay because the ancient inks that they used at that time were unlike what we use in modern times. They didn't have any acid in them. In other words, there was nothing in the ink that would ever bite into the papyrus or the vellum. So what was written on these sheets was on the surface. And if they wanted to be used over again, then the person using that could simply take a solution and a sponge and he could wipe out what had been written completely. That's what it meant in their everyday life to cancel that certificate of debt written in someone's hand. It could be wiped off cleanly away. So those are the two ideas. A certificate of debt that you acknowledge written in your own hand. Yes, I owe this. But also the ability for a document like that to be swept clean, no trace. Now bear that in mind because now we'll look at the spiritual truth in all of this. He's saying, listen, you were living in spiritual death and total addiction to sin, and you had a massive debt to pay to God, but God canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. What are, what are the spiritual truths behind this? I'll give it to you in three sentences. Number one, I think Paul is telling us here that we owed an unpayable debt to God. Fact, end of story. Every one of us, because remember, every human being had a debt, has a guilt problem with God, and we did before we came to Christ. So standing before Christ, dead in sin, addicted to sin, we owed an unpayable debt to God. Notice he says here, it was the record of debt, and in verse 13, he describes what was on it, your transgressions and my transgressions. That's an interesting word. There are different words to describe sin in the Bible, wouldn't you think so? Because it's a big issue. The most frequently found word talks about simply missing the mark of perfection. That's sin that we, we commit even when we don't understand the levels of God's perfection because we're imperfect people. Or it's knowing God's standard and trying to hit it but missing it anyway. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is translated transgression, paraptomai in the Greek, from para aside and pipto to fall. And basically it meant to step into forbidden ground, to, to, to know the path you're supposed to be on and to step aside from it and go your own direction. It meant a stepping out of the line of true conduct, to step aside intentionally. And the big emphasis on the word is these are sins that you do intentionally. You know that God says, I want you to go this way and you decide in a hardening of your will, no, I'm gonna keep going my way. It's, it's, it's what I would call sinning with your eyes open. And you know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. It's those moments in life or maybe those long seasons where you know that God is saying to you, don't go there. And yet you keep coming back and you keep saying, saying back to God, no, I think I will. That can happen in a moment some night that you'll live to regret forever, or it could happen as you wrestle over a period of time, and yet the conversation is still the same. You know God is saying, don't go there, and you keep hearing yourself saying, nah, I think I will. That's a transgression. That's sinning with your eyes wide open. And that's how God describes everything that is on that record of debt that you would have had to write out in your own handwriting. In other words, if God sat you down, Paula said, and revealed all the ways that he knew you violated his moral law all of your life, all those moments when God said, don't go there, and you said, I'm going. And he revealed all those to you, and you had to list them all from his perfect mind. At the end of it, you would have to admit that it was all true, and he'd have to sign it, wouldn't you? 
That's what Paul is saying here. There's a, there's a record of debt that God can identify and you would have to affirm and it has stood against you with its legal demands. It's perfectly accurate. It's totally true. And one day you will have to answer for that. You say, for, this, is, this is breathtaking. You mean there's a, there's, there's a record in God's mind of all the times when he said, don't go there. And I willfully went there and oh yes, there is. The scripture says, in fact, that if you don't come to Christ, that record will be open to you and you'll see every word of it and every moment of you of it. In Revelation 20, if you choose not to trust Christ, your list will be read because the books will be opened at the great judgment of the white throne of God at the end of time. And if you don't know Christ, you'll stand there and the books will be opened and all the deeds of your life will be revealed. You'll know. The record of debt that will stand against you then with its legal demands will be called by God. But Paul says here, listen, because of the marvel of what Christ has done through his work of forgiveness, we do not owe that unpayable debt to God, but there is one that is owed until Christ does something about it. And notice these are legal demands. It's a perfect law of God, verse 14, and they stand against you. So, the spiritual truth he's drawing here is, first of all, that we did owe an unpayable debt to God, right? But then he goes on. Here's the second phrase. Yes, we owed an unpayable debt to God, but he wiped out our unpayable debt of sin. Now, take a look at the words. He canceled the record of debt. He wiped it away. He, through the death of his son, wiped away every word every letter, every record of every moment that you and I, knowingly or unknowingly, violated his perfect law, everything that stood against us, he canceled it out. Oh, that's a marvel. You see, that's always been something that we could never imagine God would do. That's why we invented religion. But it instead has always been something that God has wanted to do and ordained to do for his people. He told this to Israel in the Old Testament era. He said in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Why? Because I'm a loving and merciful God. And I will not remember your sins. They'll be out of my sight. This was the heart of God in, in all of redemptive history. This is why the cross was designed, beloved. Isaiah 44, 22, I've wiped out your, your sins, your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I've redeemed you. This is God's heart for Israel. And one day they will return in fullness of repentance and enter into this forever. But every person that's ever been caught on the horns of their own sin has longed that God would be this way. David certainly did in Psalm 51 after his adultery and, and the committing of the sin of murder he called out, Psalm 51, 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Be merciful according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. I know the record's right in front of me. It comes into my mind every midnight over what I did and how I did it and how could I have done it and what you think of it. Blot that out. Take my record away. Hide your face, verse 9, from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David knew he needed it and bless God, he provided it through Messiah. David was prophetically counting on oh, another one who was to come. Who was that? Jesus, who walked out in the Jordan River and John the Baptist pointed at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at your Bible. He took it away. He canceled it. He set it aside. How did he do it? Through the Lamb of God. So now when we preach the gospel and we can say what, Peter, what, what was preached in Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from God's presence. So this is the miracle of it all. He not only wiped it away through the, the blood and the suffering and the, and the death of Christ, he canceled it. Canceling means wiping it clean. No more accusations against you or me. But he also set it aside. The Greek there means taking it out of the way. It's not in his sight anymore. But more importantly, it's not between you and God anymore. You know, that list, it was between me and my God. 
He's taken it away now. It doesn't exist between us anymore. It's not in his sight anymore. That's a wonder. Now, how could he have done that? Well, take a look at the phrasing here. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Some versions say, having nailed it to the cross. I like that translation. The only way God could have set aside my sin and my record of wrongs was to have justice done over it because he's not a God who ignores sin. Thank God. You see, enough of the wickedness in the world. You would not want to know a God who just blinks at sin, would you? No, including your own. No, God just doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say, never mind at sin. He never says, well, really, I've, I've, I've thought it over and that's not a big deal about sin. No, he brings justice to sin. And what did he do? He do. He brought justice through his son. That's the third, because he paid our unpayable debt for us. There is no one in heaven who is there unjustly. We'll all be there because our debt was paid and cleared by another. He paid our impayable debt, debt, and that's the phrase, nailing it to the cross. Look at it. Now, what could that refer to? It's another dimension of metaphor, another image. Well, in the time in which Paul was writing and in which crucifixion was practiced, when the Romans crucified a criminal, a person, they put on the cross over their head a wooden sign that declared who they were and what they were dying for. The chief crime that they'd committed. Now they did that with Jesus, didn't they? Matthew 27 tells us that they put a sign in in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, the official language of the courts, and Greek, the language of the street. So all the Jewish leaders could read it, All the Roman leaders were satisfied by it and everybody walking by could understand it and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So why was he being crucified? Because of who he said he was. Remember, no one could condemn him except on false witness. He never did a thing wrong in the eyes of anyone that examined him and so he was ultimately crucified in the eyes of of, of, people the human system of law because uh, of what he claimed to be. But you see, that's how people walking by saw the sign. In my opinion, God was looking at it differently. From man's point of view, Jesus was dying because of who he said he was. But from God's point of view, he was looking down and he saw on that sign, listen, your list of debt and mine and yours and yours and yours and yours. God looked down and it said that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so what was on the sign as God read it, it was all of my sin, every detail, every, every committed act, all of my transgressions, all of my moments when God said, don't go there. And I said, I will go there. And they were listed before the eyes of God because there was a record of debt that stood against me and it had legal demands and God chose to nail it to that cross. Why? Because in those hours, Jesus paid for that record of debt. He paid for that that listing of my transgressions. Every moment, every hour, every moment of torment, every blood drop, and in the darkest hours, every moment when God let hell rain down upon his son. He paid for every last ugly word of my certificate of debt that I would have written in my own hand. Every last one. God let hell rain down upon it and every last drop of wrath and rage until it was all done. And Jesus said, it is finished. Many things were finished in that final moment, including my certificate of debt being paid for. And the moment he said it was finished, what happened? Wiped. Clean. 
Perfect justice had been done. Perfect sufficiency had arrived. Full payment had been given. And the Bible says, he has forgiven me all of my trespasses and he canceled all the record of debt that stood against me with all of its legal demands. He can set it aside. And it's all of grace, isn't it? That's our wonderful Lord. And so, in the immensity of that understanding, what's a personal reality for you? Well, just remember that your record is clear. (laughs) And beloved, your past is clear now too. I, I meet so many that along with me struggle over the past, and if you struggle over your past, you're going to be tempted like the Colossians were to get involved in religion again because you still feel you need to owe something to God. And in truth, that's what was going on. These false teachers were getting a hold of the conscience of these young Christians and saying, well, Jesus may have paid for, for many things, but you've still got to live a life that earns acceptance with God. In in Colossians 2.18, he says, let no one disqualify you, which which means some people were trying to disqualify the Colossian Christians from their security of salvation. And they're saying, oh no, you need to do more. Jesus, what he did is not enough. And they insisted on asceticism. What's that? Legalism. It's trying to live a perfect life to please a still perfect God. And they were being deceived into that. And, and, And Paul is saying here, listen, Jesus only but Jesus has completely done it for you. You don't need to be under that bondage. Don't let anybody disqualify you from what Jesus did. Your past is clear. I'm amazed at the fact that there are so many Christians who continue to remember what God has forgotten. Think about that. I mean, centuries before Jesus was ever born, one of the Greek poets, Agathon, said, even God cannot change the past. Oh, you didn't know my Savior. Oh, another poet in our modern time said, I wish there was a land of beginning again. (laughs) I don't need one. My Savior swept my past. He cleansed my past. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. All every dimension of my past, I might regret some of the circumstances and the consequences. That part is real, but oh, the guilt of it is all gone. And God, in some way, listen, this may blow your mind, will even use your sin and failures in a way that will be wise and good. Oh, God can change the past because he forgave it and forgot it. So many people right now are struggling with certain dimensions of their past life or even even their present struggles and saying, God, I can't get over what I did, God. I can't get over what I did. I know it's there. It's there in my mind. And yet God would come back to you and say, but I see nothing. There's nothing there. Don't let yourself be in bondage like that, Christian. Only Jesus can give you moral certainty, and if you know him, you have it. Let's close. Back to the text, verse 15. One other metaphor. Disarming rulers and authorities. Here we know that or discover that only Jesus can give us spiritual victory. Only Jesus can give you spiritual victory. The metaphor about disarming comes into view. Once again, the biblical image, the spiritual truth, and the personal reality. What's the biblical image? Disarmed and It's kind of curious. This military thing comes out of nowhere, but Paul used it because he understood that there's been a warfare waged against sinful men and women since the dawn of sin. It's a war waged by Satan with a great weapon over us. And yet the Bible says that when Jesus died and he uttered the words, it is finished, that great weapon was taken out of the hand of all the rulers and authorities. Check Ephesians 6 that talks about Satan and the demonic hordes that stand against all human beings, particularly the believer. They've been disarmed now. Aren't Gingrich in their English, Greek English lexicon of the New Testament define the word disarm as to strip away from, and they say it referred to taking weapons from dead soldiers after you were a victor on the battlefield. 
Not only has Satan somehow been disarmed, had his greatest weapon taken out of his hand and all the authorities with them, but he's been put to open shame and God has triumphed over them in him. Our English word triumph from the Latin word triumphus. There's an arch in ancient Rome through which every victorious Roman general would bring his army and his captives when he had conquered an enemy. And they called that day in Roman society the day of triumph. Look at how all this pours out. Let me go to the spiritual truth that I think it reveals. Again, three sentences to describe it or three phrases. Number one, I think he's teaching here that man's age-old enemy, who is that? Satan himself began dominating man through the threat of, his, of, of man's own sin and the open door of death and hell. He did it in Genesis 3 after he tempted man to fall. And he'll do it all the way to Revelation 21 until he's finally vanquished. So who is our age-old enemy? Satan himself. Number two or second, man's age-old enemy and his age-old weapon. What's that? Man's sin held over him as a death sentence, that legal set of demands that stands before a holy God that's undeniable and unpayable. Oh, the devil knows it's there. The devil helped you write it. And he knows and cackles over the fact that it's over the head of every man and woman. Oh, and he'll use that one day so that you can accompany him to hell. Bible says that in a certain certain way, the devil held the keys to death and hell. But here's the third. Yes, we have an age-old enemy, man's age-old enemy and his age-old weapon, our sin and the opening door of hell was all disarmed and defeated at the cross. (laughs) He disarmed the rulers. He, he, He took took their weapons away. He made a display of them, the Bible says. He shows them off before the the throne room of heaven today as a defeated enemy and defeated demons. How can that be? Because of what happened on the cross. The Bible says that he triumphed over them in him, in Jesus, in those final moments of that cross. You see, The Bible made a great prediction. As soon as men fell in sin in Genesis 3, God made no uh, delay in stating, I'm going to bring a redeemer for you. And this redeemer, though Satan shall bruise his heel, this redeemer who's coming shall crush Satan's head. Didn't he say that? From the beginning of man's burden of sin and the devil's power over him, God said, I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to bring a redeemer. And he did coming into a time from eternity, and that Redeemer was his own son. And where did Jesus crush the head of Satan? At the cross. Where did he break his power? At the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this in verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same. God became man, Christ fully man on that cross, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Look at your text. He disarmed the ruler and put him to open shame by triumphing over all of that in Christ. Jesus Christ shattered the power of Satan when he called out on that cross, it is finished. Satan's dominion was broken at that cross. You you can imagine the scene from a supernatural perspective, perhaps, as Jesus is in the final moments of the final hours of that agonizing time on the cross. You see, the the demons and the devil are so self-deceived. They helped orchestrate their own destruction, didn't they? All the hordes of hell joined around those last few days of Christ's earthly ministry, and the Bible says Satan entered into Christ's betrayer, The cross in their mind was a point of final defeat of God's Son. And so they must have stood huddled looking down on that moment, Satan and his chief demons. 
seeing him nailed there, seeing him dying there, seeing him suffering there, and they imagined that they were almost on the edge of victory, getting rid of him and condemning all people in sin to hell with them forever. I can imagine them chortling, whispering to each other, he's almost gone. And then Jesus, in a loud voice, Luke says, cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished. And in a nanosecond, their chortling tumbles into shocked silence. And they look and they say, wait, what just happened? All their sins, they've disappeared. All that we were going to hold against them, these that he loved so much and we hate so deeply, all their sins are gone. They've disappeared. They've been wiped away in the record of heaven. These that will be his. gone. And at that moment they looked in their hands and the weapons of death and hell had been stripped away. (laughs) And then they knew it's only a matter of time before they will be sent to the hell designed for them forever. It's one of the reasons I believe that 1 Peter 3 says that when Jesus' body was in the grave in the three days before the resurrection, his spirit went into the place where the demons were bound, certain deeply wicked demons that had been bound since the early days of the earth's history for deep sin. And it says he, he preached to them. What did he preach? <laughs> the victory of his cross. And he said, you're heading to hell and your plan to take people with you has been destroyed. Also in Ephesians 4, it says that he, when he ascended on high, he took many captives. I actually believe that when Jesus rose from the gra- grave and he ascended into heaven, in that moment, all of paradise was emptied. All the place where those that had believed on the Lamb of God that was coming in the Old Testament times, they were taken from that temporary holding place called paradise, and they were taken right to their permanent dwelling in heaven. <laughs> took them all. Abraham and David joined him in that moment, and Joshua and Daniel. Blind, uh, poor poor Lazarus uh, wouldn't join them until later, but the thief on the cross went. And they all, justified by faith, were led to their new home permanently in heaven. I'm going far afield. Well, he disarmed and defeated our enemy at the cross. What's the personal reality for you? Well, a lot of Christians today are still spiritually intimidated by Satan. So were the Colossians. Go back to Colossians 2.18, and it says, Stop letting people, these false teachers, disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. They're saying, angels still have power, and these spirit beings have as much power as Jesus did, or maybe more. They have new knowledge Jesus didn't have. You've got to figure out how to worship them and how to be under their authority. Oh, that's satanic to its core. But I find that still Christians today are spiritually intimidated by Satan, but you never have to be intimidated by him again. He is a a foe and you have to fight him, but you never have to be intimidated by him because the ultimate weapons of his warfare have been stripped from his hands. He cannot condemn you to hell and he cannot undo that marvelous cross. He can't touch it. So who can give you the promises that Jesus could? Who can you go to to get a changed past and forgiveness? Only Jesus. Who can, you, who can you go to to get a confident future against a wicked world and a wicked enemy? Only Jesus. You do it day by day, and you do it moment by moment, and sometimes the spiritual battles can be so intense you can almost see your opponent. (laughs) But you triumph because he did. You know, uh, Martin Luther uh, 
had a lot of battles with the devil, and I don't agree with everything Luther taught or even everything he did, but he was used of God to bring the Bible out of the hidden years of the dark ages and to clarify the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. So if you're that guy, don't you think you would be the focal point of all of hell? <laughs> he was. And there are many stories and descriptions that he gave to others about how Satan was so against him that Luther felt he could almost see him. There's a famous story where Satan was just so brooding in Luther's study one day as he was translating the New Testament into German that Luther whirled around and took the ink bottle and just threw it at Satan, shattered on the wall. I like to think it went right through that ugly old boy's head on the way, but anyway. I mean, there's, there's one that Luther himself told, though, about one day when heavy condemnation was laid on his mind because of the sins of his past. And at one point, Luther entered into a conversation with Satan, if you will, and he told him, go ahead, list them all. And Luther even reminded Satan of some of the things that he hadn't, been brought, hadn't brought up. <laughs> and then he told Satan to write across the whole list, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've done that. You see, that's what you have to do. How do you battle over the regrets of your past and over the sense of unforgiveness? You just take that list and you keep it where it belongs. Listen, on that cross. There's a list about me, and I keep it where it belongs, on the cross where it was nailed. God took it out of the way, and every time I'm troubled by it, I point my troubler to the cross. Luther indeed wrote, Oh, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that word? The cross only. 